everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. We have another good one for you today. I am speaking with Sid Garza-Hillman, who has a new book out called Ultra Running for Normal People, Life Lessons Learned on and Off the Trail. Let me tell you a little bit about Sid. He's the author of published works, Approaching the Natural, a Health Manifesto, Raising Healthy Parents, Small Steps, Less Stress, and a Thriving Family, and Six Truths, Live by These Truths and Be Happy. Don't and you won't. He is a public speaker, podcaster, certified nutritionist, and running coach, and an oxygen advantage breathing instructor. I'm breathing as I say that. He is the Stanford Inn Resorts Wellness Programs Director, founder of Small Steppers, and race director of the Mendocino Coast 50K Trail Ultramarathon. Let's all breathe in. And celebrate being with Sid today on the release of Ultra Running for Normal People Life Lessons Learned on and off the trail. Woohoo! Wait a minute, I'm trying to oh, yeah. pop the cork. I'll do it. I'll do it. There, I popped it. Okay, uh, good. Balloons, all kinds of yes. streamers falling down. Thank We're you. Applauding. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yay! Okay, Ultra Running for Normal People. Okay, yeah. is that like an oxymoron or something? Well, one would think, but the argument of the book is that, in fact, no, it is not an oxymoron because I am living proof that anybody can do it. Ultra Running is for everybody. So I have a bunch of questions, but one is I'm kind of confused as to why you want to make Ultra Running for everybody because one of the things you talk about is one of the nice things about it is it's not really a crowded field. So you don't really want everybody running around those trails. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, I want it. I want it for everybody, just not all at, at once in the, on the same day. So let's okay. just put it there. Yeah. And there's lots of races coming up around the world, really. But in the U.S., amazing. And I cap my I cap my own race to keep the 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 list nice and small, um, on purpose. And it sells out. You know, five hours. It's kind of cool. But I keep it. I keep it. I'm craving the personal intimate. Thing. And I feel like it's, I just did a video on YouTube just about that same thing. I'm craving, I, I feel like we need to be, make a concerted effort to sort of grab that back. The interpersonal, human to human, small kind of things uh, that are a dying art, in my opinion. And, and uh, so that's what I'm trying to fight against a little bit. I agree with you. We are going in some strange direction with social media and we're hearing about all the dangers of that. And we look for our thrills from clicks and likes. Yep. And that's right. It's not a healthy thing. We need to be outdoors. We need to yeah. be breathing. And we're going to talk about breathing because there's good breathing and not so good breathing. I love the subject. <laughs> and moving our bodies. That's right. But ultra running sounds intense. And we're going to hear a lot about why it's for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Just a quick question before we jump into the book i just kept asking myself you you talk about training and planning and maybe sometimes you didn't plan as well as you could but you ended up doing the races you finished you felt good about it but during the race there are moments when you think about not finishing when you're mm -hmm. thinking about pain and i just wonder is it like a natural human state to want to inflict pain on ourselves? No, except <laughs> to, not to want to. 
I will argue that it is a natural human state for people to be in times of discomfort. That I will argue. And I think that the modern world is doing a bang up job of making it such that we're never uncomfortable. It's just not good for us. Hmm. So now in the modern world, we have to make a concerted effort to dive into a little discomfort, not a lot, but a little, and it keeps us alive and it keeps our bodies and minds strong. And by always erring toward full comfort with Tylenol, if we have a you know headache and Pepto-Bismol, if we have an upset stomach and everything else, we junk food and distractions on our phones to keep us from really considering and thinking and, 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 and pondering, we are kept in a comfort zone that is not healthy for us as a human. So I would argue that it's not natural for us to be as comfortable as we are. That I will mm. argue. And I think that trail running uh, and ultra running does a real good job temporarily to put us back into more of an animal aware, happy, jo uh, happiness kind of uh, state of uh, state of it's a, it's a calm joy uh, rather than a, a dopamine hit from a click, as you mentioned. So mm. that's the kind of dichotomy that I'm, that I'm exploring in my, in all my books, really. Okay. Very good. Did I win that round? <laughs> you're you're the winner today. One, this one is your for, release. One day. for one. <laughs> Let's open another bottle. Let's do it. Oh, now this wow. is this this interview is gonna go off the rails. This is alcohol free champagne. I Got haven't okay. had any alcohol since January 1, 2023. I've good never been you. a big drinker, but it's like I'm done. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm looking at the table of contents because there's a few things I want to touch on. So the first thing in lesson one is to move through fear. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a goal to get people into ultra running, but everything you talk about in your book can be applied to life. That's right. Life lessons. Mm -hmm. So the first is about fear. And fear is a very interesting thing to have. Sometimes we create it when it mm -hmm. isn't there. But this is a scary planet to live yeah. on. So there's a lot of fear to move through. For sure. And I know personally, 17 years ago, I had advanced ovarian cancer, low survival rate. I had to move through my fear. And I yeah. did that through a number of strategies, including meditation. Tell me about moving through fear of ultra running. Well, it, you know, the ultra running. So let me... Part of it is the tra is being on trails. So there's that natural aspect of, but you know, there's people who live in cities who can't get to trails. So there's parks and there's even on a street, you can achieve this kind of mindset. Ultimately, this is a mindset book through and through. However, if you can get on trails whenever you can, there is a certain element about those that are, there's, there's stuff you can do on trails that you can't do anywhere. Okay. But the ultra part of it is the fear inducing. And here's what I mean. The ultra, so just for your listeners to know in case they don't know, an ultra marathon is any distance over a marathon. So a marathon is 26.2 miles. You're an ultra marathon if you run 26.3 miles. However, in the ultra marathon world, there's fixed, semi-fixed distances, 50K, 50 mile, 100K, 100 mile, and they're going on, there are people doing 240 miles, crazy. But anyways, and for, for most people, all of this sounds insane, but it, well, it does. And, yeah, and for it did normal to me, people, as you right, call Right, yeah, and it did to me too. <laughs> and, that, and that's the sort of, that's the message of this book is as crazy as it may sound to you right now, excuse me, <clears throat> getting all choked up. Um, it is actually not only accessible for most people, and people who like me have other busy, I'm not, money is not the thing in my life. It's a thing, but not the thing. So it is doable by more people than you, you would imagine. Now, what stops people from trying it has a lot to do with fear, fear of the unknown, fear of discomfort. 
uh, fear of not finishing, all these kinds of things that come up when you when you intentionally put yourself out there into a challenge that is fear-inducing. And again, in this world where it's too easy to not do these things, again, we don't have to move our bodies almost ever, right? We don't have to look for food. We don't have to look for shelter. We get in our cars that we move, that move to us and move for us and everything else. So this is a return in a way to me, for me, to what's natural to us, to this human being out on trails, being able to tap into the strength that is in all of us already. This is the magic that I discovered when I did my first trail ultraman and I was terrified. I just did one three months ago. I was terrified. The night before, I was just like, oh, what am I doing? It's all that stuff comes up, right? So the idea of moving through fear isn't to make the fear go away. And recently, a friend of mine goes, you, she goes, you do all this stuff. You must not be afraid of anything. I was like, I'm afraid of everything. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not, I'm not a robot. These are, it's terrifying to put a book out because then all of a sudden people are going to have, you know, get attacked and whatever. It's, it's fear inducing. Can you coexist with that fear? Can you in a calm state, and this is where breathing comes in, by the way, it's all tied in. Can you in this calm state, make a decision of what you want to do and do it in spite of the fear that you're feeling? So when I towed the line of that race three months ago, fairly undertrained for it, by the way, it was terrifying. It was terrifying, but I showed up, I got up, I walked to the finish, I walked to the start line and I ran. And I ran knowing that I may not finish that day, but I did. It took me a way longer than I thought it was going to take me. My uh, wife was like, I didn't even know. I had my phone. I don't run with a watch and I put my phone in my pocket. I didn't even look at how long I'd been out there until about a mile left. A buddy of mine who also named is Sid, this girl, my training partner, she comes, she wasn't running the race, but she was like worried about me. So she comes running into the course to find me. She goes, are you okay? I go, yeah, just taking a while. She goes, you've been out a while. I looked at my phone, 10 hours and 40 minutes. Uh -huh. Yeah, didn't, didn't even know. Anyways, so all that fear is to move through that fear. To learn how to do that is an incredible, and I'm struggling with it myself, but it is a goal of mine to get better and better each day. To not try to make the fear go away. To, that's too energy draining. Can you just go, okay, this is something I'm feeling fear about, but I want to do it. I know I'm going to be happy if I do it. And I continue on in my life. That's the sort of boots on the ground message of the book. Applause, applause, applause. Pop Thanks. another bottle of champagne. Done. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's almost like a placebo. That, that <laughs> non-alcoholic champagne is getting me all tipsy. Mm. Okay. One of my favorite parts was the lesson two to slow down. Mm, my favorite, one of my favorites too. And I'm kind of learning about this now. I've never been a big athlete. I know exercise is important. I like yoga. And I've been in and out of running. And I keep thinking, you got to run again. Recently, I joined a gym and I'm doing the treadmill thing. And I'm concerned about my heart with high cholesterol. I'm a long-term vegan and I'm on a whole food plant diet. I do everything right. But still, there's this number and so I want to strengthen my heart and I'm reading about it. And I'm learning that as you describe in the book, slow is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And what's lovely about going slow is it's easy. It's yeah. doable as you get stronger. And it's enjoyable. I mean, you know, the thing about, so, so I find, and I'm a running coach, by the way, but it's not the primary thing I do. I'm a more of a, not more of a, I am a squarely small steppers stress management coach. Now within that umbrella, I'm a nutritionist and I'll teach nutrition and I'll teach breath work and I'll teach running or fitness, but it's all in a stress management perspective. Meaning when you're exercise, I'm finding clients, I'm decreasing exercise in more clients than I'm increasing. That's, that's for sure. I increase once in a while. Most are overtraining 
And that goes for people who are training for an ultra marathon or not. They are pushing themselves. And I go, are you trying to win the race? And they go, no, no. I go, what are you trying to do? Well, I want to have a good race and finish. I go, okay, then why are you pushing yourself to the point where you're exhausted all the time? Mm-hmm. And working a full-time job and raising a family and you know hobbies and everything else that exist outside of running. So for me, when I started running, I was in that zone of, I was a very recreational runner, but sort of looked at the pace. And well, then I tried, I signed up for a 50 miler. I had no, had no business. I mean, I had only run my first marathon the year before at 46. So this is like, I'm not an, an elite athlete, was not a competitive athlete ever, played high school tennis, and that was it. Never, no sports in college. Just go for a two or three mile run. So here I am signing up for this thing and I hire a coach because I have no idea what I'm doing. This guy who, you know, was a lawyer, quit to become a full-time ultra runner. It's a great sport. These are not money makers, right? And so <laughs> he like doesn't charge me like barely anything. I'm like, that's it. Anyways, and so for, for two months, just to get me going, first thing he goes, you got to slow down. I go, well, I can run an eight minute, eight, eight-ish pace. He goes, not for 50, you can't. And I talk about that in the book because the thing, thing is he said, you, it's a different mindset shift all of a sudden. See, so now you're training for 50 miles. I love that long. I had already started practicing my small steps approach. I'd already crafted it, but I hadn't really applied it to myself. I was still a pacer and thinking of the data associated with it. And all of a sudden he goes, slow down. I go like, what? He goes, I don't know, 12 minute, 13 minute pace. And to this day, most of my runs are so slow that people, sometimes they go, God, you don't go so slow. I go, yep. And I'm proud of it because I can do that and be with my family and have my job. And you know what I mean? Like this is the normal person aspect of the book. If you're an elite athlete, have at it. That's going to take up a huge amount of your time. No judgment. I think it's amazing. I'm, I love watching those people have no relationship to them at all as a coach or a person. Zero. When people go, I go, they go, you're an ultra runner. I go, yeah. They go, really? You know, like it's, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not that guy, you know? And, uh, but I am. And so this idea of slowing down is to allow yourself to strengthen without burning out, without overwhelm. And that goes for mind and body to slow down. So of course, it's, I took it back from the trails on into life, slowing down, doing less, less connected, you know, less pushing myself in the gym. I do a couple hard workouts a, a week, two, where I do strength training. They're not crazy. They're not high intensity interval, you know, that sort of CrossFit thing. They're not that, but they're a little harder. Otherwise, super, I would, I could talk during my workouts and you would never know. I was, if you didn't know I was on a treadmill, you would never know. I could talk like this while I'm running. That's how easy it is. Mm-hmm. Barely out of breath, like at all. And that's kind of how I gauge most of my workouts. I love that. Day. And yeah. I, I think if people knew that it could be like that, mm-hmm. they'd have less fear getting started. That's right. And, and they didn't, and, with it, right? and they enjoy it. People hate running. They hate running. <laughs> My knees it. hurt. I'm exhausted. I feel, you know, right. like I had a, I had a girl, yeah, I was had this girl training for my race one time. She goes, text me. She goes, is it normal for me to like be shivering on a couch after a run? I was like, no, you know, like she's just pushing the crap out of herself, you know, because she thinks she has to. And I'm just trying yeah. to dispel that myth. That is not natural for us. Look at wild animals. Do they run on a treadmill for 45 minutes? And check their heart rates. No, they go yeah. get blueberries and climb a tree and sit around for a while. Gorillas, you know, like it's not. We're the weird. We're the weird ones, in oh. in terms of the in terms uh, of the animal world. Okay, I agree with you there. We are yeah. definitely yeah. the weird ones. Cool. Yeah. Another thing I like about what you talk about is freedom, and there's freedom in training rather than obsession. There can be. There can. Yeah. Okay, yeah. there can be. Yeah. But maybe you have some advice here because 
I, I'm sure there are a lot of people like me. You get going, you're doing something, and then life gets in the way. You go on vacation or you have an overwhelming project and suddenly you find you're not doing the training. Yeah, well, I have, a, I have an exercise I do with clients called the habit question, and they have to go back in their histories and, and remember times where they were doing great, where they go, I was doing so well, and then this happened. And I have mm -hmm. them recount that in writing to remember, what was it? Oh, I was exercising every day, then I went on a trip. I was exercising every day, then I got a new job, and then I got, or I got sick, and then I never came back to it, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of we get into a routine and this is how, by the way, I have lived all these things and I was very much of a militant kind of, if it was in the chart, I did it to the point where I ruptured my Achilles tendon. I mean, not, not a joke. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Because the, the chart that I was training for, for my marathon, this is before the ultra where the guy said, slow down. So this is before that. And I was just going out of a book, pushed myself way too hard. Shouldn't have run that day. Should have taken a day off, but didn't have any freedom around. And that was, and that, and that is the difference is that people don't understand they're in charge. I don't care what the chart says. And if you notice in my book, there are no charts on purpose. This is a, the message here is use them as guidelines at best, but it, boy, it took me years to find, to figure that one out. Right. So taking it easy, checking in with yourself in a real way, people always throw around the term, listen to your body, but people really don't. They don't actually listen to their body. My body was screaming at me not to run that day. And I did anyways and rupture my Achilles tendon. So the freedom around this training is not only doable, it's necessary to be a normal person, ultra runner, to have a good day, recover fast, and be able to do another one. I have over 70-year-olds run my race every year. Every year. I have, right now, I have over 10, 60, 60, 60 to 69-year-olds and an over 70-year-old. And last year, I had four over 70s finish the race. This is a 33-mile trail run with 5,000 feet of elevation. And wow. over, over 70s killing it, just going across the finish line, like incredible. So- the freedom and versatility of training is, again, a mindset question. Are you in charge of the plan or is the plan in charge of you? And if you're in charge of the plan, you can take a break. You can take a trip. You can, if you got sick or you have a new job and you just do a little less for a while because that thing changed and that's normal behavior. That was not something I ever did. I was like, I must be robotic, hit the Thursday. It says to do this and it's in charge of me and to my detriment. And I think to most people's detriment, that goes for diets, by the way, you know, and, and exercise plans and everything else. We get into this kind of militant, have to be perfect all the time thing. Mm -hmm. And it drains our willpower to the point where we crash every time, almost every time, if not it's, every time. It's like freedom, but with a little discipline involved. Well, I think there's, and I think it's a great point. I, I do talk to my clients about saying rules and constraints are very liberating, aren't they? They're mm -hmm. amazing. If you are in charge of them and say, listen, I'm going to eat these foods most of the time because it makes me feel really good. It's amazing. You don't have to think about it too much. You're like, I set this rule. I set this constraint. This is great. Now, if you can't break those once in a while, then you've lost the, the, the ownership. You've lost the control. So as much as rules and constraints and discipline is, can be very liberating because it can deliver you the overall life that you want. If you can't take a break, you can't break those rules, you're going to drain your willpower. And that, and that happens to most people. People are militant about food. They're militant about exercise and they cannot break it. They've lost their control over their own plans that they put in place. I'm just thinking, have you read the book Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman? No. I just thought of it because there's a scene where the young man who's on his journey, he's a fantastic athlete and he's going through his stuff and he meets this guy at a gas station called Socrates and what you learn is Socrates is telling you to be of service all the time. He works at a service station. 
nice. <laughs> and he's kind of his mentor, his guru, and he's sitting with him in a cafe at one point, and, and they're having drinks, and the young man thought, but I thought you didn't drink. And he said, no, the point is that to know when you can and how not to abuse it. And that's that's right. That's the there's that's this the, freedom and discipline and that's right. Yeah. I have had clients and this is this is how much I've changed in the last 15 years I've been coaching people and working in this in this arena which is for a long time up until like a year ago I said it's okay to have you know junk food once in a while. It's okay. Now I'm actually arguing that it's necessary. <laughs> and that's be, I know and that sounds weird. I have had clients where I go I need you to eat junk food on Saturday night. I'm not kidding. You want to know why? Because they're holding on tight the way they've already held on tight about 10 times before they started working with me. Mm. They've done the yo-yo dieting. They've done perfect. And then I then they go on a bender or they binge because they're holding on too tight. And if they do not release the valve on that, they will overwhelm themselves into failure. So mm. uh, again, this this just so so I would rather somebody eat junk food on purpose with intention for full fun, time and place appropriate. And then the next day, get up and start eating healthy again. But that's not what happens. They hold on too tight. Then they can't handle anymore. Then they have junk food. Then they feel bad about it. And there's guilt and shame and stress around it. And then all of a sudden, this, the downslide happens. And if you look at virtually you know, every 100-year-old, 100-plus-year-old, they don't eat militantly healthy. They don't. If you interview 105-year-olds, they're not like, I've just eaten sprouts and lettuce for 74 <laughs> years. They're always like, no, I have... I drink beer. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, to me, it's a stress perspective. It's, it's coming from a stress perspective. Can you maintain overall a managed stress state? The body thrives in a managed stress state, body and mind. So if you are super stressed around food or exercise to the point where you're militant about it, it's all you think about, your relationships are being affected negatively because of it, it's a short term game. If you want to play the long game, you start to adjust your stress and maybe do a little less sometimes to maintain overall managed stress state. I found that to be very, very effective and something I work toward for myself. It's some kind of chill strategy you have. It's easier said than done, you know, because we, because we know how to eat healthy, let's say, but then we must have, and we can't go to a party or we have to bring food to a party and, you know, that look. If it works for people, fine. But in my experience, at least the people who come to me, they've had a history of yo-yo dieting. Mm -hmm. They've had a history of holding on too tight and blowing it off. They've had a history of getting to a healthy weight and gaining it all the way back and then some. And they don't want to do it anymore. So I go train for the 50-miler now. Do a little, Go a little slower today because you're, you're training for a 50-miler. I'm really into breathing. We like to say here we breathe for a living. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about this um, oxygen advantage breathing that okay. you are certified in. Yeah. So my, have you ever heard of Wim Hof? Yes. And I want okay. to talk about him. He's yeah. a cool guy. Yeah. I never met him. Kind of no, whatever. No, no, I don't. no pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Right. So <laughs> I do. I have practiced the Wim Hof thing daily for over six years. Yeah. Six, it'll be seven years in July. So. I have a cold tub on my deck and I got in this morning, it was 44 degrees and I sit there for a couple minutes and two or three minutes and I, yeah, and I do the breath work of the Wim Hof thing. Now, it's been incredibly helpful. I will say that the science on it is emerging. That's not conclusive. However, for me, it's a mental thing. It's that thing of like going into purposeful discomfort. That's my little foray into there. I always joke that like you, meditation is easy if you're in a climate controlled 
you know, house with everybody being quiet and you're on a comfortable pillow. Meditate when you're in a 44 degree tub. And now we'll talk, then we'll talk meditation. And by the way, on trails, same thing. Okay. Ah. So back to the presence, the sort of being present in that discomfort situation. Yeah. Okay. So I practice the Wim Hof thing every day, still do, but it's very much of an exercise. It's a very much of a, you do it and you don't do, you stop doing it after 20 minutes and then you're on your way. It's not how you breathe most of the time. It's a very much of a, it's a hyperventilation and then you hold the exhale and those are the rounds. But when I went to actually explore breath work in terms of a broader subject, I came across oxygen advantage. There's no cell here. It was the one that I wanted to do because it applied to how to teach people to breathe functionally most of the time. Again, the Wim Hof is start it, finish it, and you're done for the day. But oxygen advantage are a series of exercises that train, retrain. And this is why I love it so much. This is not a new way to breathe. This is about how humans were, we, this is how we are supposed to breathe in the wild. We've gotten away from in the modern world, but we're coming back to it or you can't. But exercises that allow you to retrain your physiology to breathe functionally most of the time. And that's what oxygen advantage does. And so I, interestingly, in my small steppers practice, it would be the stress management portion first, then I'd slide into food. Now, breath is long before food. I mean, it was in weeks. I go get this dialed in, start to pay attention to your breath, do these breath exercises. I've had people start to eat better before I even discuss food because mm. they're managing their stress via the breath. And they're not overeating and they're making better choices around food. They're not reactively stress eating because they have attended to the sort of bigger, bigger perspective on it. That's what oxygen advantage does. And there are others out there, by the way. It was just the one that I attached. I, I researched a few different ones and I loved this one so much because it had anxiety and stress directly uh, associated with it. Endurance athletes, however, also use this too. So that was interesting to me as well. And I've used it ever since I, this morning. You, I did exercises while I was on my stationary bike. You talk about nose breathing yeah. and how we should always be nose breathing for the most, most of the part. Time. Yeah. And I do this when I do yoga and I know we're supposed to be doing nose breathing in yoga, but I didn't know that I was supposed to be nose breathing while I was running. Mm -hmm. And so I go to this gym and COVID is still around. So I wear a mask in mm. the gym. Now, a lot of people don't like this, but then I had an interesting discovery. Tell me if I'm nuts or onto something. You talk about how we need a little carbon dioxide in our, in our breathing, not to exhale fully and that the oxygen gets better absorbed, something like that. Mm -hmm. So- I was wearing my mask and then one day it didn't work because there was nobody around me. And then I wore it again the next day and I found my performance was better wearing the oh, mask. Interesting. Interesting. You think it was carbon dioxide, a little better mix? Who it knows? could it, it could have been. Yeah. So the <laughs> so the sort of cliff notes version is 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 when you when you when you overbreathe, when you they call it per minute ventilation. When you breathe too many times per minute, that is good for the body. You're Everyone always thinks it's a fo focused on oxygen. Most everybody has enough oxygen in their blood. If you put a pulse ox, I do this when I teach uh -huh. breath classes at the, at the Stanford Inn. I always put a pulse oximeter on their finger. I go, I guarantee you'll be between 95 and 99%, sure enough, every time, every 100% of times. So it's not that we don't have enough oxygen in the blood. The question is, is the oxygen getting out of the blood into the tissues? And that's a function of CO2, not of oxygen. We already have enough oxygen. So the idea is, not the idea, it's called the Bohr effect. When there's enough CO2 in the blood, 
at least if it rises to a, 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 a sufficient level, it will trigger the release of the oxygen into the tissues. That's what we're going for in the breath technique is yes, CO2 is the waste product. Yes, you want to exhale it, but not exhale as much as we're exhaling because we're breathing a lot too much. So oxygen advantage is transitioning to the nose. It is in, out, in and out of the nose. It is slowing and lightening your breath down so that you exist with a little more CO2 in your bloodstream at any given time. Now, the hitch is, is that because we're blowing out so much CO2, CO2 is the thing that when it rises, it triggers our need to breathe. When we feel like we need to take a breath, it's because of CO2 getting high, not because of lack of oxygen. Hmm. So people are so sensitive to CO2 because they're used to having so very little in their bloodstream that it takes exercises, breath exercises over time to learn to train your body to exist with a little more CO2 be without feeling like yep, you're out of breath. And that's mm. the that's the challenge, and that's why I've, I've been doing it every day for three years. I do the Wim Hof every day, six years. I do I must do hour and a half of breath work every day, and I don't take a break to do it. It's just incorporated. If I'm walking down the hallway, I'll throw in a quick breath exercises on my way to work. I do breath work on the way to work. It is so absolutely crucial, and for has helped totally helped me in terms of running and endurance. I think consistency is an important word to talk about with all of this consistency. I, it fits in a little bit more when we were talking about freedom and discipline, but consistency mm -hmm. is a part of that. Just wanted to throw that in there. I like you know, it. I, I, absolutely. And that, but, but I throw in consistency with versatility and adaptability. So I always say in the, in the breath classes, I go, listen, we're going to do some exercises today. And I always say nothing changes today. Nothing changes after one class of breath work. Nothing changes after one yoga class. Nothing changes after one meditation session. It is about an ongoing practice. And when you can, and that's hence why I'm a, my thing is called small stepping because I'm working at long-term habit change. What we do is we learn that 45 minutes of meditation is good for you. Okay. And then we go starting tomorrow, I'm going to do 45 minutes of meditation every day. And then we do it for a while and then we burn out and don't meditate. And then we go, I was doing so great, but then I you know, had an appointment at eight and I couldn't meditate and I never came back to it. Yeah, that's because we uh -huh. didn't plan for the long view, right? So first and foremost, the, the mantra I use, and I always joke that I hate the word mantra, but anyways, the mantra I use is mind first, body second. And what it means is we learned that 45 minutes of meditation is good, but mind first, body second, meaning before you meditate 45 minutes, look at your life. What are your goals? Do you want to create a long-term habit? about meditation, okay, then you're going to do a lot less than 45 minutes tomorrow. You're going to start with one minute or you're going to start with one slow breath in the morning and begin a longer process. Don't worry about the effects of meditation on the body just yet if you want a long-term habit. If you just want to meditate for seven days and quit, have at it. But if you're looking for long-term change in your life, you have to do a little less or sometimes a lot less in the beginning to establish a long-term habit overall. And that is the challenge here because we're trained in the in the marketplace because it sells better. If I can say, Karen, I'm gonna, you're gonna get the lower blood pressure in seven days if you follow my plan. You're gonna get to a healthy weight in 21 days if you follow my diet. But people don't want to lose weight and gain it back, at least not mm -hmm. every, anybody I've ever worked with. They don't want to meditate for a short period of time and feel better stress-wise and then get super stressed again and stop meditating. They they go to these things without thinking about it too much because they want it long term but they're sold a short term kind of end game. So it is a, it's it's a it's a mindset shift through and through. And again, back to ultra running, it's that same idea of taking the long view, doing a little less, slowing down, 
take looking at all parts of your life. Where is this going to fit in? How can I start it today where it doesn't have to ch cause any drastic changes with everything? And then you begin a, a, a practice with time and, and patience and kindness to yourself. You have everything in society going against you. Correct. So <laughs> I that's why that's why you. I don't that's why I don't drive a fancy car. <laughs> but we all want that quick short-term fix. Politicians do short-term fixes. Sure. They never think sure. about the long-term. The few sure. that might are criticized because they're not getting anything done fast enough. That's right. <laughs> but yeah. if we think about it, what you're saying not only makes sense, but that's what works. It does. You know work. what? It just doesn't I, sell. I pull my hair up sometimes. Um... So do I. <laughs> okay, this is an audio podcast. Gotcha. Oh, too and, bad. <laughs> and for people who don't know what Sid looks like, you have to imagine there Watch isn't, it. <laughs> there, uh, isn't a lot of hair on his head. Okay. It's... I review a lot of cookbooks. I'm into vegan recipes. And sometimes I've been requested to create some for different programs. And all too often, the focus is on short, quick. How do I get it done fast? I've got this whole life around me. I don't have time in the kitchen. I need to make healthy, delicious meals for myself and my family in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, although that that's sort of a different... That's Well, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You could eat an apple and a bag of lettuce. Correct. Yeah. I and you're want... done. You yeah. Know? And you can also boil whole wheat pasta. And, you know what I mean? Like there's things you could do oatmeal. There's things you could do that, that are pretty quick. What I'm talking about is isn't... I mean, that's sort of a convenience thing. And I do want to make things easy for people who are trying to eat healthier, that it doesn't have to be this major thing. That's true. I've raised three kids, 100% plant-based since birth, my wife and I. And we spend less time in the kitchen than this morning. I blended up in about three minutes, uh, bananas, apples, and frozen berry, uh, frozen strawberries, and pour out this. I mean, that's their breakfast. People go, what, did you put protein powder? I go, why would I solely an uh -huh. otherwise amazing smoothie with anything uh -huh. other than fresh fruit? It's amazing. So, And water is the liquid. So we're talking about something very, very easy. But in terms of what you're talking about, like in the marketplace, the sort of goal of weight loss, the goal of six-pack abs, the goal, everything is very much of a short-term. There's two things that sell, quick fixes and fear. fear. Fear is a great seller. If I could create fear in my books, they mm. would be they would all they would be best sellers through and through how not to die is a perfect example great book but look <laughs> at the look at the oh my god right. i'm going to how not to age now now it's that kind of and you can see all the supplements and everything. oh my god oh yeah but i think i said this in a pod, of one of my own podcasts uh recently it there's books on uh how to how to live long but not how to live and there's a difference between mm. those two things and i think that you know we want potentially want both. I'm much more focused on not the end game, but how life is along the way. That that's that's what I am as a as a practitioner. But I always joke around with my clients, I go, I'm like the least sexy guy because I'm talking about day-to-day -day boring stuff. I'm talking about what makes you happy day to day, being with your family, reading an actual physical book, go getting out on a trail, the very, very simple things. It's not flashy, but I do think that it delivers happiness. And I and, and you can still do these great goals and be excited about everything, but the day-to-day -day stuff is where the happiness lies. And that's the harder work of focus and attention and calm and awareness and disconnection sometimes as well. Towards the end of the book, you have a tips section. And I was interested in what to eat on the trail and the cravings that might come along. 
I thought this was interesting because a lot of people battle with cravings, but cravings when you're really pushing yourself and what your recommendations are. Yeah. So this is, so, so my, again, my first few races were very much of a, you know, get a new, the, 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 the sort of conventional wisdom about it is you train eating a certain kind of way and you do that exactly on race day. That's what, if you train with peanut butter jelly sandwiches, then, then you better do peanut butter jelly sandwiches and people do sometimes on, on the race day. So that's how it was. And it worked fine. I finished the races doing that. However, in my own life, I have experimented. I talk about the book by not having any kind of plan, because again, I'm not trying to win. I changed my, I don't even care about the time. I mean, I really don't. I want to finish the race and be there. I don't want to look at my watch. That's why I don't wear a watch. I want to experience it, all the goods and the bads of it. Um, so letting, this is the versatility of depth, letting go of these things, because as much as you have a plan, and I, boy, the first couple of races, I had a backpack full of the gels and the sport drink powder and the things and the, the whole band-aids. I run with a thing of water now, nothing. I just pick up whatever I can at the aid station, which means sometimes I'm going, those oranges look so freaking good. And I slam about a thousand oranges and bananas, or I might have a bit of Coca-Cola. <laughs> and right, because at mile 26, when everything else tastes horrible, you got to get calories in. So this is a different, it's a, again, you can't go, well, I must force down a gel that is going to make me throw up, or am I going to have a potato dipped in salt? Because that sounds good to me. You have to get to that, you know, point. Now I will tell you, you know, that I'm hundred percent plant-based, right? Okay. So I'm a hot, so people misinterpret in my opinion, they misinterpret mm. my being a hundred percent plant-based for militancy hmm. about a militancy about food. Well, I also will tell them I'm not hundred percent a healthy eater, but I am hundred percent plant-based. Now, the reason I'm hundred percent plant-based has nothing to do with nutrition. And this mm -hmm. is where the philosophy ethic thing comes in. Yes. So thank I, you. I, yes. So if I'm militant, yes, it is militant about the ethics. I don't kill anybody. Like I'm militant about that. I always joke when I give talks, I'm like, here's something I don't do in moderation. I don't harm people in moderation. I don't think it's okay in any level. So, but in terms of healthy eating, if you eat healthy most of the time, but if you're on race day and you have some Coca-Cola, which I do because it tastes amazing and gives you the energy you need to keep on those trails, there's nothing bad about that at all. But what I do most of the time during training is I make sure I'm eating well most of the time. And then when I'm on a run, I'm actually not even worried about it as much. I'll eat dates, I'll, maybe I'll take a gel. Maybe I'll take a peanut butter jelly sandwich one day. Maybe I don't eat anything on another day. I kind of mix it up again mm -hmm. um, to be a little less uh, robotic about stuff. That's just kind of my own trek, but I found it to be very applicable, applicable to most people I work with as well. I'm just, it's just curious. I'm just wondering what the body is saying to you when you're somewhere along the far along and you get a certain craving or you don't want to eat anything, but you need to eat something. And and can and are those messages real that they're giving us? They're they're real. The so when I want when I want Coca Cola at mile twenty six, it's not because Coca Cola has a magic thing. It's because I grew up drinking Coca Cola and I barely drink it. And when I'm so fatigued and about to feel like I'm going to die, okay. having a Coke is the best thing ever. It's a mental game. Now on a physiological level, the sugar in Coca Cola goes right on in, and right. and and you and you need it. It's so stress weakens digestion. So if you're in mile 26, you to eat a, you know, complex Cajun red beans and right, it's going to go nowhere because you are not able to digest something that complex. That's why people who are running eat those gels. You know what the gels are? Literal junk food. 
They're just mm. pure sugar because that's going to go into your body as fast as possible. That, that is on race day. That's, that's applicable. That's what you're supposed to do. So what's at play there is more of a, you need to eat, you need calories, what sounds good. And that's not going to cross an ethical line. That makes sense. For me, I have an ethical line. Some people don't. They get to it. And you should see the stuff. At, and look, the race I direct is 100% vegan. No, but I don't really talk about it, but it is. It's only one of two vegan ultras in the country. So the, everything mm. at my at my aid station is potato chips, oranges, bananas, uh, organic peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Numino Oreo cookies, you, you know, things like that. And so there's a nice wide range, but that's because people show up and they're like, I just want those cookies. They look so good to me, you know, and, uh -huh. right. And so, <laughs> they, and so they get it, but I mean, they're out there for nine hours. Right. Yeah, and true. so this isn't everyday stuff. You live in Mendocino. And right. I discovered you when we visited the Stanford Inn the first time. To me, it's one of these paradise on earth spaces. Now you live in it, so you must experience challenges and ups and downs. So maybe it isn't completely paradise, but when we come to visit, it's just, oh my God, this is such sure. an incredible place. Can you talk about what makes it so incredible and what you do at the Stanford Inn? I want to give them a little plug while we're here. Yeah, cool. I always do. Um, been there 17 years. Um, and I run the wellness center there, um, the wellness programs director, and I teach cooking classes, nutrition classes, and breathwork classes. And I do guided hikes, but I also organize the retreats and it's not a retreat center. It's a, it's a resort. People come and they stay and they may not do anything, but some people take classes while they're there. And some people sign up for, we have these vacation packages where it's sort of a, not sort of, it's a private retreat. It, maybe it's them and uh, they and a partner and the two of them, or they come with a group of friends and they do a series. And I, the one who coordinates the itinerary and all those kinds of things. So that's, that's what I do. I help manage the restaurant um, as well. But the main thing, my, my main focus is the wellness side of things. I do, you know, some event coordination too. So the, it is a resort. It's the only vegan resort in North America. 95% uh, or more of our guests aren't vegan or vegetarian. So there is the challenge. And like my race, one of only two vegan ultras, but I would mm. say 95% are of the runners, if not more, are not vegan. So how are we, or at least my goal, Joan and Jeff, Stanford, who started and created the damn thing, but our goal in this resort is to mainstream this way of living, this way of doing business, this way of existing. Can you, can you, there is a, a cost to doing anything in terms of the world, like having a restaurant, there's waste. But can you minimize that stuff? Can you lighten your touch? Can you not cross ethical lines, for instance, that you may or may not have? We do. So there it goes. And so how do you exist in a thing that is appealing to a broad range of people? And so I think it's more interesting that we're not preaching to the choir. And I also think it's interesting and a little bit disappointing, by the way, is <laughs> that our some of our harshest critics and our, frankly, meanest guests are vegan. Oh, please. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it's, a, I got to tell you, it's a bummer. It's a, it's a huge bummer. So our best chefs in that kitchen have been not vegan, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about trying to move things forward, my thing is if you're a vegan and you are passionate about vegan for whatever reason, if it's ethical, environmental to me, it's all ethical, how you treat yourself or how you treat the planet. It's one, it's one thing for me, but that's an aside. But if you're passionate about that and you come to the Stanford and you don't love the food that we be quiet about it. Go nail every other business that doesn't care about the environment first, then get us last. But that's mm -hmm. not what they come on the attack for us. And it bothers me because we're trying to push 
a lifestyle ahead that is joyful for people, that is fun for people, that they come and they have a, their first vegan meal and they go, oh my God, I don't feel way down. I feel really good. And they start going more plant-based at home. And this happens over and over again because of their experience at the Stanford Inn. They write us two years later, I wait, you know, they may not be hundred percent, but boy, they're doing better than they were before. But we get vegans, you're dead, dead, dead. It's like, geez, we're the last on your list of, of anger. You know, go express that somewhere. You know what I mean? Like the angry vegan. When I give well, talks on what, what do they complain about? Like having oil, salt, and sugar or uh, what? no, I mean, we first of all, we minimize that stuff anyway. But again, we're not a health food restaurant. Of course. We're, right. So we have a bar and everything else. But yes, they get they nail us because we're more whole plants and it's not as flavorful as whatever. And Okay, the food there is fantastic. I th- I, I don't so know how, we, who, we got, anybody who could complain. We well, th- we got one this morning. Oh, uh, uh, literally, like a half hour before, I got forwarded by this person who, you know, is has hell bent on taking us down. Go somewhere else. She, but but in her mind, she's the objective opinion. Your food. She doesn't say I don't like your food. She goes, your food lacks flavor. Well, we just got five reviews last week that said our food is phenomenal. So. You know what I mean? But it's not like, I don't like it. Okay, good. Then go somewhere else. Like, it's fine. It's no, no, no wow. problem. We're not, we're not right. And so, and she's vegan. So it's, here's what I know that you're doing wrong. And it, that's what bothers me about that whole kind of movement. And I, when I give talks, sometimes I, I joke, I go, there's vegans out there right now that make me not want to be vegan. We have to do a better job of creating an example of vibrancy and health and joy and fun for crying out loud, right? This is in theory, we go to this thing to make the world better and to be happy. I raise my kids this way because it's easy and fun and I don't want them to have the allergies I had when I grew up, right? Um, well, we get caught in this kind of anger place that I don't think is healthy. Frankly. I am so sorry for all the people that do that. I am so sorry because the Stanford Inn is we're, such a special place and on the try, planet and, 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 and it's th- not hard i mean it is yeah. hard it's yeah. hard to run a restaurant sure. and it's even harder to do what you do correct it'd be super easy if we served it costs and, money yeah. it's expensive you it's need organic. to charge it's it's yeah. insane we get we get nailed for the cost and it's like if you saw our food price you know we buy organic food we are we, the thing about it is are and we you perfect? survived the pandemic yes i mean come on yeah and the thing is like I'm are, we, are, are, are we perfect <laughs> yeah, i know are we perfect no not by long shot but my thing is we're trying mm-hmm. and any establishment that is trying should get a pass in my opinion i i, I joked on a podcast recently i go you should give a bad review to mcdonald's every time you go there even if you love the food you should be like i cannot believe what they were feeding they were poisoning me they're trying to kill me right but we give a good review to that because it gets us high and then we go to the Stanford Inn and oh. we're eating a whole plant, you know, meal and it still tastes really good. But if we're used to, you know, used to Mexican food that has cheese baked on it, then you may not be able to taste what we're serving you. And that's fine. But most people do love it. They do. They love the food. I mean, you're not going to tell you. But anyways, it's just that kind of it's a bone I have to pick because if you're really passionate about moving this idea forward that people can eat plant based or mostly plant based and enjoy it and also help the environment, Ease up a little bit, everybody out there listening, because it's not helpful. It's not helpful when you post a pu- a, a public review mm-hmm. that that will dissuade somebody from coming here and trying this way of eating out, or taking a cooking class, whether they're a nutrition class or one of Jones Creative Play Shops. All these amazing things we offer. So, look at you, got me all excited. <laughs> I I love the Stanford Inn. We've only been there twice. I would love well, to get back. back there again. It's such a beautiful place. 
It is. It's a, it's a pretty magical place. It just even aesthetically, the land, when, yeah. when you drive in, it's like, where am I? This is, it's just this kind of like, I mean, and then it's right on the river in the Pacific Ocean and the trails nearby to run on. I kind of want the Stanford to become like a trail running hub because it's so mm. right there. And, and for my race, actually, the, a lot of runner, runners stay at the end because it's two minutes from Convenient. the starting, starting right. line. Yeah. Or not. You know, and and they but they stay right there. And Stanford is one of the it's the founding sponsor of the race. You know, so they know about it already, and they stay. And it's it's just fun. It's just a fun. Oh, that would be a, just... a great reward. I got to finish this race because I know get to back enjoy to the, the Stanford Inn. Totally, right? totally. Whew. So you have a family. You I have do. three kids and mm-hmm. a wife. And yes. how do they feel about all this running around? They are fine <laughs> with it. Yeah. I mean, and you, your, your listeners might be surprised at how very little I run day to day. Like I am not like, right. I'm not training for anything per se. I'll probably ramp up a little bit because I run my own course uh, in April the, the day before. Um, but about 30 minutes a day, you know, I, I like, like everybody else this morning, I was mm. on a stationary bike and or I take a nice light run and then I'll do 30 minutes of strength training a couple days a week. It's pretty mellow. So they're not like, Oh, dad's gone on the trails for four hours. You know, like that's, those are the old days. Um, and not that old, only about eight years ago. Um, and so it's pretty mellow day to day. Um, there's some challenge. I will not lie. There are challenges to being, to raising kids plant-based, um, and they're not nutritional. Those are, that's the last, that's easy. That's the easy stuff. They're amazingly healthy and they do ballet and basketball and soccer and track and whatever else. Um, I have a daughter in, you know, Berkeley. She's a sophomore there. She's fine. There's a lot of, they have a lot of stuff at Berkeley. I have 14 year old twins. Um, who are freshmen, but the sort of stigma of being vegan, of being pretty much the only vegan kids in their school, there are some challenges there. That's a, that's been a, it's been a challenge of communication to make sure that they know why we do it, that it's an ethical thing. Um, and again, you know, I get my second book, Raising Healthy Parents. That's my wife and I making sure that we're taking care of ourselves so that we can sort of, you know, handle weather all these kinds of things. They're not a ton, but it comes up every now and then. My my the daughter in, in college right now she got uh, harassed when she was twelve for being vegan by a teacher's wow. aide. Yeah. Oh, wow. look at the look at the vegan freak in the middle of class at twelve years old. So there's <laughs> been there's yeah people have hangups about food. They are you know they are attached to it in a way human beings in general. But some people are so they feel threatened by a choice we're making that we don't even talk about. But if they find out they're threatened by it. And so there's been some challenges there. Not a joke. It's hard so, to believe in the 21st century in Mendocino and in Berkeley of all places that. Well, Berkeley, she's fine. That she, Berkeley, no problem. She's in college now, but this is when yep. she was here. And Mendocino, I live in the town called Fort Bragg. It's on the Mendocino coast. Okay. It's different. Um, yeah. Well, but Mendocino too, not a good vegan huh. place. And you think it would be, but it's not. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people get hung up about food. You know, it's, it's a, it's a thing as you know. <laughs> I do know. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Sid, this has been such a pleasure. I've learned a lot. I enjoyed reading your book and thanks. I think uh, everybody would enjoy it and learn from it. And if you have no desire to do any kind of ultra running, you should just read it and then see what happens. And even just get on a trail and run, you know, jog or walk on a trail, but go, Mm -hmm. go, go a little longer than you might and try to disconnect. Don't put anything in your ears for, for, for as much as you can. And, and, to really kind of pay attention to the terrain and to the weather and the sounds. And, and it's that kind of animal experience that I'm urging people to get back to sometimes. And then you, you're connected most of the time, but sometimes disconnect. I, I like the perspective. 
Cool. All right. Ultra running for normal people. Life lessons learned on and off the trail. Congratulations on your Thanks. release and much so luck. Thanks. And that's it. All right. Thanks for All having right. me on. I really appreciate it. You're yeah. awesome. Thanks. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye. I hope you found that interview inspiring. Maybe you'll get out, find some trails, do some running, do some walking, just get out and move and enjoy what you can on this planet. I really like the concept of going at a pace that is easy. That doesn't make you want to stop. It makes you want to continue. It feels good. And it ultimately makes you stronger and it gives you endurance. You don't have to impress anybody. Like, look at me, I'm really fast. No, you take your time, you go at the speed that works for you. And if you're consistent, you get better. Slow and steady wins the race. What race are we doing? The human race? <laughs> I don't know. And while I have a few minutes left, I want to talk about food because it's all about food. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that my partner Gary DiMatteo and I have a nonprofit, Responsible Eating and Living, and we have posted hundreds of recipes on that website. And we have not posted many new ones recently. And it's not that we're not making food all the time because we are. But a lot of the food that we make is similar to the recipes we posted. We'll make different variations based on the ingredients we have. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about today. I posted a falafel burger recipe back in 2012 and it was okay. And I created it because I couldn't find one. I always loved the flavor of falafel, but I didn't want to fry it. So I was really into making these baked burgers and why not make a baked falafel burger? Since that time, we've been making lots of different kinds of burger recipes. And my most favorite one is the most recent one, ER, even cowgirls get the blues veggie burger. And I thought I could modify that recipe to update my falafel burger. And it was a really good idea. <laughs> so the idea in the even cowgirls get the blues veggie burger we use a cup and a half of beans and a cup of grains and a lot of herbs and spices. And basically that's it. So I used that concept to update the falafel burger and it was really good. It's got garbanzo beans and a grain. The first time I made it, I used quinoa. The second time I made it, I used our multi-rice blend, red rice, black rice, and brown rice. And, and then I changed up the spices with falafel. I use cumin, a lot of it, coriander, a lot of it, fresh parsley, fresh garlic, and fresh onions. Mm. And the mix is really, really good. And so easy. Did I say it was easy? It's easy. <laughs> and if you make enough, this recipe that I'm going to post on this on this podcast page, makes eight burgers. And you can double the recipe, triple it, and make as many as you like. You can freeze them and have them ready for whenever you want them. 
We serve them on Ezekiel burger buns. If you're gluten-free, I'm sure you can find some gluten-free bread version to your liking. And we added avocado, a little chow cheese, the field roast spicy chow cheese, C-H-A-O. Are you familiar with that cheese? It's kind of a treat in our house. We don't have it very often, but we had a little and we put it on our burgers and melted them on the burger. And I also like to add a little chopped salad on the burger. And this time we added a secret ingredient in the chopped salad. This kind of mixes up all the feelings of herbs and spices, but we were at a Korean restaurant recently in Manhattan, Hungawi. We hadn't been there in a long time. It's so good. And then we were walking around Little Korea or Korean town. It's just a couple of blocks with lots of restaurants and some Korean stores. And I thought, I want to pick up some sesame leaves because that's a particular flavor in this type of cuisine. And we chopped some of it up and added it to our salad. So that chopped salad that I put on my falafel burger had a little sesame seed, sesame leaf in it, which added to all the fun flavors and they all went really well together. All right, I've gotten myself really nice and hungry and I'm glad that we have leftovers of the new updated baked falafel burger. Let me know if you try it. You can email me at info at realmeals.org about the falafel burger or anything else. I love to hear from you. That's another episode of It's All About Food. I'm Karen Hartglass. Thanks for listening. Have a delicious week. 